got to do a little hookup here uh, while I am getting ready to, uh, to do that. Uh, you, I can't possibly get through everything, but um, I have written a book. It's called The Indestructible Book, Examining the History of Our English Bible. It goes through a whole ton more than I'm going to be able to cover in the three sessions that I got. If you're interested, it is uh, uh, 45 euros, and I will mail them to Brother Day. They're printed in the UK, um, and uh, so if you're interested, that's fine. If not, that's fine as well. There's a sign-up sheet in the back uh, for you who are interested. Now, I'll get uh, mine compatible with yours here. There we go. Now, there's a lot that goes before this, but I do not have uh, the time to be able to do all of that. But the first English Bible, before we get to this, was uh, a hand written by John Wycliffe. It was a translation of the Latin Vulgate, which is corrupt, but it did contain the Word of God. And many people came to know Jesus Christ in the 13s and the 1400s because of Wycliffe's handwritten Bible. Uh, many of uh, those who preached that he taught how to preach and teach from the Bible, um, they died by being burned at the stake. So I'm going to start with this man. His uh, name is uh, Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam. And just like John Wycliffe, just like William Tyndall, just like all the other ones, uh, uh, they were Catholic priests and held a Catholic theology until they started reading the Bible for themselves, and then they realized that they were lost sinners and needed Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Uh, and um, I believe that we'll see Erasmus in heaven. He said, we are assured of victory over death, victory over the flesh, victory over the world and Satan. Christ promises us remission of sins, Fruits in this life and hundredfold, and therefore life eternal. And for what reason? For the sake of our merit? No, indeed. I just want to stop there a minute. If you're trusting in your own good works, I mean, you can be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, and help little old ladies across the street, but that isn't going to get you to heaven, friends. You need the Lord Jesus Christ because you're a sinner. No, indeed. But through the grace of faith, which is in Christ Jesus, Christ is our justification. He said, I believe that there are many not absolved by the priest, get this, he was Catholic too, and not having taken the Eucharist and not having been anointed and not having received a Christian burial. He's talking about uh, the sacraments of the church. He, said, he says that while many others have had all the rites of the church and have been buried next to the altar and have gone to hell. Uh, the fact is you need to flee to his wounds and you will be safe. You need to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I spent two summers here at the uh, Erasmus Museum, whoops, Erasmus Museum uh, outside of Brussels, Belgium, and God used Erasmus. You see, the Islamic Turks came in and uh, began persecuting all the Christians, and so uh, those people who had Greek New Testament manuscripts uh, collected those manuscripts, and they fled towards Germany. They fled towards England taking those New Testament manuscripts with them. And Erasmus was used of God to collect Greek manuscripts from all over Europe. And when he couldn't get the manuscripts, 
he would write down the important passages that were there. And this is the Erasmus House Museum. This is inside the Erasmus House Museum. In fact, there's Erasmus sitting. Oh, no. Wait a minute. Well, that's me. But I am uh, sitting at his desk where he uh, worked on his Greek-Latin uh, New Testament for the first time. Erasmus put together from Matthew all the way through Revelation in one book all of the received texts that he had collected uh, there. And uh, in preparing his Greek New Testament, um, he even wrote to the Vatican, asked for readings from the corrupt Vaticanus, and he rejected all those readings because they just did not line up with the Scriptures. They were corrupt. And so ultimately, in 1516, which we have back on the table there, uh, there's five editions, uh, he made a, a translation of uh, the uh, Greek text New Testament, he collated it all, but here was the key thing. Uh, he made in the other column, the second column, a Latin translation. And most of the people who were educated in that day, uh, they knew Latin. And so here's what they did. They opened the Latin Vulgate and they compared it to Erasmus' translation. And they freaked out because in Luke 13, 3 and 5, if you were to translate it in English, the Latin Vulgate says, except you do penance, ye shall all likewise perish. Uh, now, Erasmus translated it like it was supposed to be. It said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, let me tell you what repent is. For five years, I was a military chaplain. I was in ROTC in college, and we would be marching like this, and then our sergeant would say, about face! And repent means to do an about face and be ready to take your instructions from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, another one. Uh, very interestingly enough, in the Latin Vulgate, it says in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our super substantial bread. Uh, and uh, in, uh, in Erasmus, it says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, let me just tell you quickly, i got to go quickly, i got a short amount of time, so I'm going to talk very fast. But uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes that when you hold up the host and say hocus corpus, that it turns into the literal body of Christ. That's called transubstantiation. That's why they said... Give us this day our super substantial bread. They believe that the, uh, uh, the, the grape juice turns into the literal blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We reject that. It, it doesn't. We don't bow to the, to the host. We don't bow to that. We don't believe in transubstantiation. The Lutherans, they have a variety on that. It's called consubstantiation. In the United States, if you make chili con carne, that's chili with meat. And consubstantiation means meat. And so the Lutherans believe in consubstantiation. They don't know how Jesus is there, but he knows that he's there. So I don't believe in the magic of transubstantiation. I don't believe in the mystery of consubstantiation. We teach in our church, this church teaches, this do in remembrance of me. That's not magic. That's not mystery. That's memorial. You remember what Jesus Christ. There's no saving merit in taking communion. There's no saving merit in any of that kind of stuff. Either Christ did it all or he did nothing. And so Erasmus, that's what Erasmus does here. And in the third edition, 1522, which is the beginning of the, the line of what is called the received text here, though it goes way back to the apostolic times, but it included 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 that had been omitted in the previous edition. Uh, Erasmus did that. So what happened was, uh, is William Tyndall... Uh, then gets a hold of Erasmus's 1522. It's an illegal book in England. It's an illegal book in England. Um, I'm not going to talk about Martin Luther, but it says Erasmus laid the egg and Luther hashed it. That's just saying that Luther took Erasmus's 1519 
and he translated it into the 1522 German uh, September Bible. But William Tyndall did it uh, much more powerfully uh, with uh, the English egg, as it were. Erasmus, in 1516, died surrounded by his Protestant friends. I want to tell you, Baptists are not Protestants. Baptists never broke off the Roman Catholic Church. Baptists go way back to apostolic times. But uh, he died amongst his Protestant friends, having no relationship with the Roman Catholic Church whatsoever. And so, now let there be light. That's a phrase that we should recognize, and that's a phrase that William Tyndall came. So we're going to look at now... They're on the back table there, the Bibles of the Martyrs. I just want to tell you that possessing any Bible, I was going to bring one up here, possessing any of those old Bibles was punishable by death. It was a capital crime because the Roman Catholic Church didn't want anybody, any layman to read the Bible. They didn't even want the priest to read the Bible. Uh, they wanted them only to study and to read canon law. Now, I wish it was a canon like I had because I'd put them in it and shoot them out of a canon, but that just means... Uh, the dictates of the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't want him reading the Bible, and anybody doing that would be burned at the stake like these seven martyrs on April 4th, 15th, were burned to ashes. And, oh, let me just tell you, Fox's Book of Martyr tells us why they were burned at ashes. The principal cause of the apprehension thereof of these persons was teaching their children and family, the Lord's Prayer, you see that there? The Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. Ah! Can't do that. It's illegal. And so they were tried by the ruling power of the Roman Catholic Church, and they were burned to ashes for that. God raises up William Tyndale to help break uh, Rome's iron grip on the English people. Uh, I've done a trip with my wife all around England to find all these places in North Nibley, in the Cotswolds, which is my absolute favorite place. I try and stay there in the Cotswolds when I go to visit to England uh, over there, but he was born there, and it was a very, very uh, rich place because of the wool and all the sheep that were raised there. And William Tyndall was no slacker. He was a brilliant young man. In fact, he went to college at Hartford College when he was age 12. And uh, I went to Hartford College not real long ago, two years ago, in fact. And in Hartford College, they have this window. It's the William Tyndall window there. It's a beautiful window that they have at Hartford College. And here is Tyndall printing his New Testaments there uh, at Hartford College. And so... Uh, John Fox says of, of William Tyndall, this good man, William Tyndall, the faithful minister and constant martyr of Christ, was brought up even from a child in the University of Oxford. And, and I love this part. I'm going to skip over some of that and look at the highlighted part down here. If you want to be addicted, this is what you need to be addicted to. It says, and a liberal arts, and especially in the knowledge of Scripture, look at this now, whereunto his mind was singularly addicted. Saturate your mind with the Scripture. It is the Holy Spirit of God that uses the Holy Word of God to change your life, to direct your life. In fact, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You know what that says? The Bible tells you what's right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. 
Now, I want you to say that with me. The Bible tells you what's right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. One more time, the Bible tells you what's right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. And that's true. Doctrine, what's right, uh, and, and reproof, what's not right, and correction, how to stay right, and um, instruction in righteousness, so uh, how to continue in that. So anyway, William Tyndall was studying the word of God, which was illegal. But that's how he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. He attends uh, Oxford College first, and then he trans, uh, transfers to Cambridge uh, in England. And at Cambridge, he picked up his, quote, Protestant convictions, uh, and uh, they were studying the works of Luther. One thing I will have to say about Luther, if you read Luther's introduction to Romans in English, boy, oh boy, it presents the plan of salvation and lays it right out there. And uh, uh, so uh, William Tyndall, uh, he was brilliant in the languages. He knew Hebrew, Latin, Greek, Italian, Spanish, French, and English. He also had a working knowledge of German. I don't know how you could. If I was to speak French to you, you'd be able to tell very clearly that I'm not a Frenchman when I said, Bonjour, comment allez-vous Avez-vous un grand problème? Vous avez mal à la tête? And, you know, I'd start talking, you say, Come on, you're killing that. What's wrong with you? But anyway, William Tyndall, uh, you couldn't tell what was his mother language. Well, uh, he graduates, and he goes off to this is little Sodbury Manor. It's a private manor. I've had the blessing of being uh, in uh, little Sodbury Manor where William Tyndall was. He was a teacher, and he was a preacher at little Sodbury Manor for Knight Sir John Walsh, and this is a look uh, outside at the back of William Tyndall. There's uh, me outside there. And this is William Tyndall's room. This is where he began working on the translation of the scriptures. He got under conviction. He got under a great deal of conviction because he would look out his window right there. It's this window right there. He'd look out his window there, and here's what he would see. But not only that, in the springtime, what he would see was plowboys. They had young boys. They didn't have child labor laws there. Oh, you're old enough. You're old enough to work the plow. You're old enough. You're old enough to work the plow. They'd have you in the fields working there. But Tyndall believed that the plow boy needed to know Christ too. He had a burden for souls, friends. Even though it was in great peril and he's working on translating the scriptures, why was he doing it? Because he didn't want people to die and go to a Christless eternity in hell. I want to tell you, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes unto the Father but me. He, but by me. He didn't say, I am a way. He said, the way. I just want to tell you, uh, broad is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life under, everlasting. Uh, so many people just say, oh, well, you know, there's got to be more than one way to heaven. I believe God, and God said there's only one way. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved except the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. End of sentence, end of paragraph, end of options. So you have Christ or you don't have Christ. Uh, this is back when Lynn and I were a little younger. Our hair's a little different color now. But anyway, we're inside Little Sodbury Manor. We're in the Great Hall. And Sir John Walsh was still a Catholic, and he, he invited all of the uh, prelates of the Catholic Church and the high mucky mucks, and they came around, and they'd sit around the table, and the one sitting next to William Tyndall, 
he was talking to William Tyndall, and every time he'd bring up something, Tyndall would say, well, here's what the Scripture says. And then the Catholic priest would bring up something else, and Tyndall said, well, this is what the Scripture says. Finally, that priest just got ticked off at Tyndall. He said, we were better to be without God's law than the Pope's. Woo! I completely disagree with that. Because here's what William Tyndall says. We don't know exactly what Tyndall looked like, but we know that he was a redhead. Now, if we have any redheads here, <clears throat> well, never mind. Uh, <laughs> but here's what Tyndall did. He stood to his feet and looked at the man. He says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years pass, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. You see, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You need the word of God. You need to get into the word of God. You know, forget your stupid newspaper. Turn off the dumb television. Get into the word of God. You say, are you saying we should never watch it? No, I watch television from time to time. But what I'm telling you is, my wife and I start every morning in the Word of God in a good time of prayer to make sure that we get our day started right because I am telling you if it's as wicked here as it is in the United States of America, and I speculate that it is, man, oh man, I need to have my battery charged by the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. William Tyndall, he has to leave England because nobody's going to let him print his uh, English uh, New Testament that he's gotten done, so he flees to Cologne, Germany, uh, and he's going out the back door just as the soldiers are coming in the front door because he started printing stuff there and he couldn't do it, so he goes to Worms. I know it looks like Worms, but it's actually pronounced Worms, and he goes to Worms, Germany to be able to print his William Tyndall New Testament. This is uh, the first printed New Testament in English that it has existed. Um, we have, uh, there's, there was a hundred of them printed. I have one of the copies of the facsimiles, the exact facsimile of the Tyndall back on the table there. But I want to tell you something. He printed 3,000, but the Bishop of London uh, probably bought over 2,000 of those. And you know what he did? He put them by St. Paul's cross, set them on fire, and burned them. He burned them. And there's only two complete editions uh, and one partial uh, that is even left today. And that second copy was found in 1996 in Stuttgart, Germany. But here's very interesting. Along the Thames River, you come across this statue of William Tyndall. And this is where William Tyndall smuggled in his Bibles in sacks of flour and bolts of cloth. Possessing a Bible was still a capital crime. I'm thinking of, of these two laymen, William Woosley and Robert Piggott. They were arrested for uh, street preaching using their Tyndall Bible. And uh, uh, they were burned at the stake. And Woosley, as they're taking the Tyndall Bibles, the picture shows they had a bunch of Tyndall Bibles they just got confiscated. The, uh, the stuff wasn't burning good, so they started ripping up the Bibles. And uh, uh, Woosley said, give me one of those Bibles. And so they did give him one of those Bibles as the fire is doing its work down there. And he reads to the people a gospel of John. And the, the historian says that one-third of the people who were there, and there were hundreds of people there to watch this. It was a big, it was a big 
you know, like a circus atmosphere back in those days to see people burned at the stake is gross to me, but one-third of the people came to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I'll tell you what, you come to know Jesus Christ, you might burn in the fire, but you're not going to burn in hell for eternity. Um, well, anyway, uh, they hunt down William Tyndall, and finally on the 21st uh, of May in uh, 1535, two soldiers seized William Tyndall. He was betrayed by a friend who offered to take him to dinner, and Tyndall comes out to meet him to go to dinner, and the guy says, oh, man, I forgot my change purse, and Tyndall says, no problem, I'll go back in and get my money, and then I'll, I'll pay for it. And so when Tyndall comes out the second time, he's greeted by the soldiers, and William Tyndall is taken. It's no longer there. Uh, there's a prison on the site, an abandoned prison. We used a lot of the bricks from Valbord Castle, but he's uh, uh, captured about um, uh, May 21st, 1535. But uh, the point of the matter is, is that he's imprisoned in Valbord Castle, which is lo located six miles north of Belgium, and he's kept there 500 days without a trial. But you say, well, what was he doing? What was he doing? You know what? He was preaching. He was preaching. He led his jailer to the Lord. He led his jailer's wife to the Lord. He led his jailer's adult children to the Lord. And not only that, uh, this is what they have in the books, how it makes it look really nice. No, this is more like what his prison cell was like. But we do have a real letter from William Tyndall, the only one that exists. It's written in Latin. And um, he is actually signs it there, uh, William Tyndalus, that's Latin. He says, please give me a, a warm cap, a coat, and pants, and a piece of cloth to patch my tattered clothes, a candle. Ah, my Hebrew Bible, dictionary, and grammar. And so uh, what he's doing is he's translating Genesis through Second Chronicles while he's in prison, friends. Uh, here's some of the heresies he's charged with. He maintained that. Faith alone justifies. Ooh, I'm a heretic. By the Roman Catholic Church, he maintained that to believe in forgiveness of sins and to embrace the mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation. Ooh, I'm a heretic. I believe that. Um, he denied that there's any purgatory. There ain't no, uh, there is not any purgatory. Uh, slaughter the king's English, too. Why not? All right. Um, he affirmed that neither the virgin nor the saints pray for us in their own person. He doesn't believe in the chromancy. Uh, and so they send these two guys. They send Richard Tappers and Jacob Latimus. They're going to change William Tyndall's mind and get him to come back to the Roman Catholic Church. Tim said no. He said, I'm standing on the word of God. My day that every year I remember is October 6, 1536. Because let's listen, Tyndall was such a good translator that 85% of the translation work that he did in his New Testament is in our King James Bible right there. Right there. He was so good. But they asked him if he had any last words before he is burned at the stake. Uh, some historians say that he strangled him to death. Some people say they didn't. But... This one, it shows him being strangled to death, but he, his prayer was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. The people need the Bible. Uh, this monument has been, uh, been moved three times. It's in honor of William Tyndale. The Catholics protest every time. The thing is too close to their church. They don't want a heretic so close to their church. So I'm standing outside 
uh, about um, three quarters of a mile away from where he is burned at the stake, and it just uh, commemorates that. Well, we intend to let a guy to the Lord named Miles Coverdale, and he began studying the Bible uh, and early church uh, uh, preachers at Cambridge University, and he said this, he said, now I begin to taste of the Holy Scriptures. You see all these guys, Catholic priests, all these guys, Catholic priests, you know what changed their life? Studying the Bible. Studying the Bible. Why? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing what? By the Word of God. All right, so he's studying the Bible, and, and uh, I am set to the sweet smell of the holy letters uh, with the godly savor of the holy and ancient doctors, and, and so uh, he comes to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, and just the last paragraph here, because I got to move along quickly, it says he gave himself wholly to propagating the truth of Jesus Christ. He made a profession of faith for the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this is a picture of the first edition of the Coverdale Bible. It's back on the table there. Um, and so it's the first complete Bible. Problem is, is God isn't done yet because Coverdale uses uh, Tyndale's New Testament, but then he translates from the German and the Latin, the Old Testament, because he didn't have what Tyndall had done yet, and so uh, the next guy comes along, and his name is John Rogers, but John Rogers, uh, the pseudonym for William Tyndall was uh, Thomas Matthews, and so John Rogers, when Tyndall died, he gave John Rogers all of his work in the New Testament, Genesis to Second Chronicles, and so John Rogers takes Genesis through Second Chronicles, and then Tyndall's New Testament, and then he uses uh, Coverdale's uh, uh, translation from the Latin and German, and he produces another Bible, and uh, it's illegal uh, to have this Bible, but nonetheless it has more of translation from the underlying original text in it. But God isn't done yet. God isn't done yet. It's really interesting. Henry VIII said, go ahead and publish this one. Obviously, Henry VIII didn't read it because here it is. You know what that is? W.T., William Tyndall. And it says up at the top, William Tyndall to the reader. So Henry VIII didn't read that, obviously. But anyway, uh, it is, uh, Bibles have nicknames. It's called the Wife Beater's Bible. Uh, and here's what it says uh, in a note. It's not scripture. It's in a note on 1 Peter chapter 3. He dwelleth uh, with his wife according to knowledge that takes her as a necessary helper and not as a bondservant or a bondslave. And if she be not uh, obedient and helpful unto him, endeavor to beat the fear of God into her head that thereby she may be compelled to learn her duty and do it. But chiefly, he must beware that he halt not in any part of his duty to her word, for his evil example shall destroy more than all of the instruction can give shall edify. So that has a nickname. This is uh, where John Rogers, when Bloody Mary came to the throne, John Rogers was the first one she burned at the stake. And this is what's left of... Smithfield, where many martyrs burned at the stake. Just a little round portion there, not far from the Church of London. And uh, they tried to get him to recant, and John Rogers said, That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. He said, yeah, not backing off. He refused to back off, and he's the first one right there, John Rogers. He's the first one burned at the stake in Bloody Mary's reign. Uh, he had 11 children. Uh, ten of them were present at his burning. His children assisted and encouraged him and comforted him. And the historian says it seems more like they were being led to a wedding than they were to a, a burning. And uh, when he uh, was lit on fire, 
He washed his hands in the flames as though it were cold water. And friend uh, John Bradford, who was the next one to be burned, said he broke the ice valiantly. Next we come to the Great Bible. The Great Bible is great because of its size. It's also, you can see here, called the Chain Bible. That's why the keys are laying by the Great Bible page there, because Henry VIII was uh, uh, schizophrenic or something, because he put a price on William Tyndall's head. The Great Bible is basically William Tyndall's work with Coverdale's adding it, but he demands that these be put in all churches and a reader provided. And the cool part about that is, was when the preacher's doing their homilies, their sermonettes, the people aren't there. They're over there listening to the Bible being read. It aggravated the preachers. But anyway, nonetheless, they wanted to hear the words of life. Um, Miles Coverdale was the one who did the revision. It was a revision based on the Matthews Bible and called the Great Bible because of its size. And Henry is the one who ordered it. Every parish church would have one and a reader to read it. And it's called the Chain Bible because uh, it was chained uh, to a stand uh, where it was. It's called the Kramer's Bible also because Kramer was the one responsible for having it placed in churches. It's called the Treacle Bible because in Jeremiah 8.22, instead of saying, is there no bomb in Gilead, it says, is there no treacle in Gilead? And then it's called the Bugs Bible. <laughs> the 1549 edition is called the Bugs Bible because in Psalm 91, instead of reading properly, it says, thou shalt uh, not need to be afraid for any bugs by night. So, whatever. Now we come to the Geneva Bible, the exact one that I have back on the table, the Bible of the Pilgrims. God still wasn't done yet because you do not have a complete translation from the underlying text, the Hebrew Masoretic text with a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament and in the Greek Textus Receptus in the New Testament. The Geneva Bible is the first one to be translated completely out of the Hebrew Masoretic and the Greek New Testament, but it has a nickname as well. It says uh, in Genesis 3, 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Uh, speaking of Adam and Eve. Uh, and they sewed fig tree leaves together, and there it is, made themselves britches. All right, so anyway, it says aprons in the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, this is a Bible at first. If you look at all those Bibles, it starts from this end and goes that way chronologically. But the Geneva Bible was completed in two stages, uh, the... 1557, the New Testament, and then the Old Testament. There's the New Testament. I didn't bring that. Uh, and it's the Bible and first and only Bible published in Bloody Mary's reign. It's the first Bible to be completely translated out of the biblical languages. It's the first study Bible. It is uh, the first Bible to use um, the easier-to-read Roman style of type instead of the black letter. It is the first Bible to have verse division. First time there's a John 3.16. You look at all the older Bibles, no verse divisions. Chapter divisions came in, in, the, uh, in, the, 11th, uh, in the 1100s, uh, but the verse divisions came in 1560, first verse divisions. I have a little two-volume Greek book there. Just very, very quickly, ooh, I'm behind. Just very quickly, um, they were going to arrest a Paris printer named uh, Robert Stephanus. And uh, he got word of it, so he decided to flee Paris and head to the free, free city of Geneva. But he took two little 1549 Greek New Testaments. As he's riding on horseback, he's marking in them where he thinks the verses start and end. 
And then those are the verse divisions used in the 1560. Verse divisions are not inspired by God. Sometimes I get so aggravated, I think, ah, that verse shouldn't end there. But anyway, to make a long story short, I do like the verse divisions instead of having to read through. Uh, they're there. And it was the first Bible to use italicized words that were inserted by the translators to help you understand it better. The King James followed that tradition. And uh, it was the Bible of uh, John Bunyan. It was the Bible of William Shakespeare. He quotes it over 3,000 times in his plays. The Geneva Bible was. It's the Bible of Jamestown, the Bible of Pocahontas. It's the Bible of the Pilgrims. And uh, it is called the Breaches Bible, as I already told you, because of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. And then we come to the Bishop's Bible. Um, God's still not done yet because all of the Calvinistic notes in the Geneva Bible, uh, people were taking that as it being a part of inspired God's Word, too, and all they were is the notes of men. The Bishop's Bible comes along, and the Bishop's Bible was uh, the, the, the Church of England hated the Geneva Bible. It undermined the authority of the bishops and, uh, and the, 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 the Puritists, uh, Puritans. Uh, Puritanism was springing up, and separatism, nonconformity was blossoming as well. So they appointed eight or nine bishops to, uh, um, you know, put together the Bishop's Bible. Uh, and uh, they listen to the Latin version, which is a mistake. Uh, but anyhow, it's very stiff. It's the worst of the old translations. And it, I have it open. I have my Bishop's Bible open to this. In our King James or in the Geneva Bible and uh, uh, the Bibles before that, and even in uh, the Matthew's Bible, it says, cast your bread upon the water, and after many days you shall find it. It says here, it's, it's right open to it. It says, lay thy bread upon wet faces. And now she'll find it after many days. I'm not laying my bread on my face, I tell you. Now, we come to the apex. It wasn't Tyndale because Tyndale just got the New Testament done. And it couldn't have been the Coverdale because the Coverdale was a translation of a translation. And God doesn't want a translation of a translation. Can't even be the Matthews. The Matthews was, Matthews was better. God purified our King James Version of the Bible seven times as we go along we finally come to our King James Version of the Bible. King James happened to be the sixth of Scotland before he was the first of England. He was born, born in Edinburgh Castle. Any of you been to Edinburgh Castle? All right. It's very interesting. We were in the room where he is born. And um, uh, it tells you a little bit about, uh, about that. It was uh, King James was born in 1566. Queen, Mary, Queen of Scots, which is completely different than Bloody Mary. Not the same Mary. Um, and her second husband, uh, Henry Stuart Lord Darnley, uh, and it was a turbulent time in Scotland because the Presbyterians were in control and the Catholics were out of control. Uh, and um, it happens to be that James was only one year old, 13 months to be exact, when he became the king of Scotland. And so he ruled uh, through regents, and his mother had to go in exile because she was Catholic and uh, the Presbyterians uh, were going to do away with her, so she uh, fled to England. And uh, uh, she left when uh, King, she never saw her son again. She never saw her son again the whole, her whole life. Uh, King James VI becomes King James I when he is named successor to the English throne by his cousin Elizabeth I. And he uh, comes to the English throne in 1603. King James was the first of the Stuart king. King James was faithful to his wife. Unlike Henry VIII and some of the other kings, 
faithful to his wife his entire life. He did not stray. He did not wander. He died of a stroke in 1625 after ruling Scotland for 58 years and England for 22 years. And uh, the Bible is used during King James' time. There's three important ones. The Great Bible, it was used for the Church of England to read the Psalms. Uh, and then the Geneva Bible, the people loved the Geneva Bible, had all of the verse divisions and the commentary. The Bishop's Bible was the official Bible of the church, uh, but uh, as uh, they say, the historian says, it was the most unsatisfactory and useless of all the old translations. It never caught on with the people. And there was a great deal of division in uh, the Church of England at the time. Uh, all was not well in the Church of England. There's two main parties. There's a low party who says, you know, the Church of England didn't come out far enough from Catholicism. And frankly, it didn't, But because you know how the Church of England started. Henry VIII wanted a divorce from his wife. Uh, the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce from his wife, and so he said, well, I'm just going to start a new church. So that's what he did. He started the Church of England. He became the head of the Church of England. The problem was, well, the good thing was that a number of Bible believers, born-again people, were put in high positions in uh, the Church of England during uh, Henry VIII's time. But uh, when King James came along, the lower church party uh, called the Puritans are fighting with the ritualistic party, the Catholic party, uh, that are in the church. And uh, the Puritan party complained about uh, uh, a number of grievances with how Catholic uh, the Anglican Church still was, and so a thousand of them signed a petition called the Millinery Petition. They said, we need reform within the church. So a thousand of them signed it. Uh, they just objected to making the sign of the cross during baptism. Well, why didn't you need to make the sign of the cross? There's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. They did not um, uh, like using uh, the, the ring in marriage, uh, they didn't like the rite of confirmation, they didn't like wearing the, all of the clerical robes, uh, they said it was too Catholic, it was too unessential, if not unbiblical, if not, uh, if not uh, extra biblical, it was uh, not biblical, it was unbiblical. Well, James is trying to bring together, because there's a great deal of fighting going on between the low church and the high church party. And so he calls a conference of 50 of the leading leaders of the two branches in, in, uh, of the church in England. And this is Hampton Court Palace, a thousand rooms in Hampton Court Palace. At any rate, so he calls them, and on Monday, on uh, uh, January 6, 1604, he calls about 50 of the high mucky mucks in the church, the prelates of the church, in an effort to straighten out the problems that they're having. And um, on the second day of the proceedings, one of the Puritans, uh, the president of Corpus Christi College, Dr. John Reynolds, made a motion. He says, move that his majesty, that there might be a new translation of the Bible because those which were allowed in the reign of Henry VIII and Edward VI, who, who was a believing monarch, but he was young, he didn't last very long, uh, were corrupt and not answerable to the, the truth of the original. So he makes that motion, and King James said, I like that. Now, King James was a scholar in his own right. Uh, King James knew how to read Latin. He knew how to read Greek. Uh, King James also uh, had written a treatise against the use of tobacco, 
and he had written a, a, a theological treatise against uh, uh, the devil, uh, and so he had written some other works, and so uh, they all come together. They're going to, behind this uh, place is where the 50 people met. It's interesting what it's called. It's called the cartoon room. Now, it's called the cartoon room, not because there's Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and all those type of things there. Uh, no, uh, what, what, what we have in relationship to the cartoon room was the works of Raphael all around there. Uh, and so there was long tables there for they had the meeting. The king was receptive, and he, and he said that he wanted to appoint 54 of the best scholars in the kingdom to translate the Bible. And uh, these men... Uh, were the best linguists of their day. Uh, I do English uh, halfway well. Um, I do Greek okay. Uh, Hebrew, give me a lock and a bagel. Um, a little bit of French, but uh, their main guy who headed up all this was Lancelot Andrews. Lancelot Andrews knew 15 languages. He knew Chaldee, which would have been the Aramaic. He, he knew the Hebrew, the Greek, the Syriac, and, and uh, 15 other languages. You know, they said, oh, way back then people just weren't educated. Uh-huh. I have a Ph.D. And uh, I'll tell you what, these guys, I don't hand a hold a candle to these guys. You know? Um, and so the translation work didn't begin until 1607, and they broke up into six translation teams, two at Westminster, two at Oxford University, two at Cambridge University. The Westminster team, uh, 10 from the Westminster team, were assigned uh, the book of Genesis through 2 Kings, and then the second team was uh, assigned Romans through Jude. That's the section I would like to add. And then the Oxford team, the Oxford team had Isaiah to Malachi, and eight were occupied with uh, doing the Gospels to Acts and Revelation. Then the Cambridge team, uh, they got the bummer stuff. Uh, they got uh, First Chronicles to Ecclesiastes. That was all right, but they also got the Apocrypha because the Apocrypha was in there, even though they said the Apocrypha was not to be used to establish doctrine. It was included for its historical nature, not for its biblical nature because it's not inspired. It's not inspired. And the king laid out 15 general rules. We're not going to look at uh, all of them, but I want you to know that every portion of Scripture that was translated, the King James is the best translated Bible that has ever existed, barring none. Um, uh, it says every particular man of each company to take the same chapter. So he would take the same chapter as I would take the same chapter as he would take the same chapter. And all ten on the team, we'd have to take the same chapter and translate it. Then you know what we'd do? You and he and I would have to get together, and we would have to say, well, uh, how come we translated this word communication when somebody else translated it this way? They would have to support why they translated it so they could come up with the best translation of all. And then it would end up going to all the other committees. They would all have to review it, my friends. Uh, and uh, it says, as any one company hath dispatched one book in this manner, they shall send it to the rest. So it's reviewed, reviewed, and reviewed. Every portion of the King James Bible was reviewed at least 15 times. Some of them reviewed 17 times. I just want to tell you 
uh, that there's no other Bible who has been as meticulously translated by more educated people than we have today than our King James Version of the Bible. And if there was a place of obscurity, they said, send letters all around to any man in authority in the land and get their judgment on it. That's why it took from 1607 to 1610, and then the last year they reviewed it, went verse by verse, and so letters are to sent to the bishops and the clergy all over the place, and uh, the chapter divisions are to be kept uh, and not altered uh, uh, at all or as little as, as necessary. And this, no marginal notes at all to be affixed. You know why? You have the pure word of God. The pure word of God. You don't, nobody can put their spin on it. You got the pure word of God. It says, but only for explanation of Hebrew or Greek words. Also, they allowed for cross-references if you would, and so uh, they couldn't have any of those notes. Now, when the work was finally done, the final committee of six men, six of the best of the whole group, they met at Westminster Abbey uh, to do a careful review of the work. Uh, This is the inside of the Jerusalem chamber. Nobody's supposed to get in there. Um, When I went there, I asked the guy... uh, I'd like to get into the Jerusalem chamber. And he says, oh, no, no, no. You, nobody gets it. That's private residence. You can't get into the Jerusalem chamber. He says, well, it's important to me. I've written a book on the King James Version of the Bible. I had another preacher with me, Dr. Phil Stringer. He says, he's written a book on the I said, can you call your boss? So his boss comes over, and it's a lady. And I said, uh, hi, I'm Dr. David Brown. This is Dr. Phil Stringer. And we've written a book on the King James Bible. He says, oh, I love the King James Bible. The King James Bible, my favorite version of the Bible. That's wonderful to meet you. Uh, She said, that's private residence. Nobody can get in there. And then she said this. If you'll watch me in about two minutes, I'm going to go over and unlock that door. That's all she said. But I'd been in there once before. And so in about two minutes, she went over and unlocked the door and walked in the door. And Dr. Stringer sitting there. I said, come on! (laughs) So we walked in the door there. And she was waiting. She says, now i got to check and quiet to make sure there's nobody in there. So she opens the door to the Jerusalem chamber where the final revision of the King James Version of the Bible goes on. Nobody in there. So she goes in there, lets us take his mini picture, takes pictures of us in the Jerusalem chamber. And then she says, but I have to let you out another way because nobody's supposed to be in here. So anyway, these are actual pictures in the Jerusalem chamber where the final revision of the King James Version of the Bible took place. And uh, they meticulously went from Genesis to Revelation, these six men, Genesis to Revelation, word by word by word by word by word to make sure everything was in order before they sent it out to be published. There had been a flurry of translation work for 85 years. Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthew, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible. One, two, three, four, five, six. But our King James Version of the Bible has been purified seven times. 1611, the English Bible translation work was done, and there was no more English translations of the Bible for almost 300 years. 
hundred years. God was done. Then you had the apostates, one of them dabbling in the occult, the other one, uh, Mary Oliter, Westcott and Hork. Then uh, they introduce a corrupt Greek New Text, and I don't have the time to really talk about it. I'll talk about it tomorrow. You want to come back uh, for the 1030 service because I'm going to preach a message called Things That Are Different Are Not the Same, and you'll learn more about it. Finally, God had an English Bible that was complete. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver is tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I think that there's something to that. I believe that God has providentially preserved his word, including the very words of Scripture in the traditional text of the Bible. I believe the King James Version preserves by accurate translation um, the inerrancy and Greek of the Greek received text and the Hebrew Masoretic text for English-speaking people. I believe that we have God's preserved word for us in the English Bible, period. The end of it. It is all there. 